0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are going through the book of Titus. We just began the book of Titus a couple weeks ago, little epistle, only three chapters long. It is packed with a lot of good stuff, a variety of things. Uh, So if you want to get caught up on the intro that we did, you can see that's on the web. We post those, or actually somebody very kindly does that on our behalf. So thank you, our faithful saints who make that available. Uh, we got up through verse 5 in the last couple of weeks, so we'll be picking up verse 6 and 7 today. And the topic, uh, based on the sermon notes, you saw there, qualifications for elders. Qualifications for elders. Those are listed in Titus chapter 1, 6 through 9. Why don't you follow along with me? I'm going to start reading in verse 5. Follow as I read 5 through 9. This is what Paul opens up this epistle to. Titus with, for this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, that island in the Mediterranean, in order that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, Not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, being sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So those are the qualifications of an elder In a local church, and we talked about last week, that an elder is a pastor, is an overseer, is a bishop. They're all synonymous, interchangeable terms used for different points of emphasis. We saw that clearly in Scripture. So these are the uh, qualifications of a pastor, elder, whatever you want to call them. Uh, Flip your, just go back a couple of books to 1 Timothy, chapter 3. And you need to keep this in mind uh, today and next week. While we're talking about qualifications for elder, pastor, bishop, overseer, Presbyter, Episcopos, in Titus chapter 1. Those should be augmented, complemented, supplemented in harmony with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and following. These books were written about close to the same time, 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, Paul wrote Timothy for a very similar reason to a similar person as he wrote to Titus. Uh, he was writing to Timothy to straighten things out at Ephesus. He's writing to Titus to straighten things out at Crete. Again, the tam- same time frame, some similar problems. Uh, boy, we got to start with getting some leadership that's biblical and godly intact because that will really help everything. So here are specific qualifications God is looking for. So that's 1 Timothy 3, 1 and following. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or bishop or elder or pastor, see, it's a parallel passage to Titus, chapter 1. It's a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. See exact same uh, phrase. The husband of one wife. It's also in there. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious. I love that word. I don't know what it means. Pugnacious, we'll talk about it later. No, I do, but uh, we don't use that word anymore. Uh, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he manage or take care of the church of God? And he must not be a new convert or green, literally, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So just keep that in mind. And we'll make reference to 1 Timothy uh, here and there, today and next week, as it applies. So going back to Titus chapter 1, looking at qualifications for elders. And so these qualifications, by the way, these Paul didn't make these up. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter. God, God made up these qualifications. Almighty God of the universe. And he gave these qualifications very specifically to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul delegated this responsibility to Titus to clearly articulate God's standard In a church. Because we talked about how uh, Paul and Titus were on the island of Crete, apparently maybe planting some churches, also encouraging maybe some churches that already existed, little house churches that could have been started there during the week or after the time of Pentecost when Jesus rose and ascended back into heaven. It says there were Cretans there who heard the gospel, believed, probably went back to Crete, and maybe started little house churches with very little information that they had. Maybe they had the Old Testament. Uh, so if that's true, if there were these house churches from the time of Pentecost, these churches now have been around for 30 years, 20, 30 years with a limited amount of New Testament information. So they're kind of scrambling as to how do we run and conduct this thing? Because we don't have the whole New Testament. They didn't have 27 books in the New Testament. They didn't have the privilege of Paul and other apostles visiting the island of Crete to see how the churches are going. So at the end of Paul's ministry, finally Paul is able to go to the island of Crete, uh, be among saints there. Notice that there are churches and house churches. Uh, we don't know how long Paul spent time there. could have been a few months maybe. And he was with Titus. And Paul realized, wow. I haven't spent enough time with these folks yet. These church, churches need more order. They need some more direction, guidance, maturity, and especially they need some solid leadership. And while Paul was there, he noticed, wow, well, we got a, Houston, we got a problem. We have some disorder, and we have some false teachers and false teaching going on that's troubling uh, these churches on the island of Crete, and the troubling teachers were Jewish in orientation. They were professing Christians who were Jewish who put faith in Jesus and then they brought over baggage from their old man-made religion and they wanted to foist a whole bunch of legalism on the Gentile Christians or the Gentile believers on the island of Crete. And these, these guys are all over the New Testament. They are in the book of Acts. They are in the book of Galatians. They are in the book of Titus. You can see them. Sometimes they crop up in like Colossians. So they are professing believers in Jesus. They are Jewish by birth. Some of them were actually, indeed, born-again Christians. Some of them were false prophets and teachers, very deceptive. And they would and they loved power, apparently, because they liked the limelight, and they wanted to get the pulpit, and they wanted to leave the Sunday school class, and they would be teaching, and a lot of stuff they would say would sound right, and it was out of the Bible, and it was good. And every once in a while, uh, there was something unbiblical that compromised grace. And so that was the problem on the island of Crete among these churches. And Paul needed to tend to it with some urgency, so he leaves Titus behind. And these guys are introduced. Look at verse 10, Titus chapter 1. For there are many rebellious men. The reason we need godly, qualified pastors, elders, leaders in these churches, Titus, is to counteract what is going on with these ungodly, rebellious teachers who have infiltrated the churches here on the island of Crete. And apparently these guys, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, the party of the circumcision. These were, again, professing believers, Jewish in orientation, circumcised at birth and trying to carry over into Christianity, trying to force Gentiles to be circumcised, to be fully accepted by God. That's legalism. Works righteousness. It pollutes and undermines the purity of the gospel. So these guys somehow got to the island of Crete and they were creating and making a menace. They're also mentioned, by the way, in chapter 3. We'll see that uh, in Titus when we get to it. So Paul realizes, wow, uh, as the leaders are of any organization, so goes the organization. Isn't that true? It doesn't matter if it's a uh, a business, a tech business, uh, a church, whatever, a family, a school, the quality... Of the leadership will reflect the organization as the leader is so goes the organization i was privy to a conversation that happened right on this campus about four weeks ago it was very interesting because there were all these techie young techie smart guys that i don't and i don't know anything about the techie world and they're talking about the new uh ceos and leaders at yahoo and microsoft and uh i mean not microsoft but yahoo and they're talking about the leadership at google and all this stuff and you know, they're going on like they know these people personally, but I was just listening in because it's very interesting and all these changes. And the point of their conversation was the whoever's in charge, the CEO of that organization is going to reflect and kind of dictate which way that organization is going to go, whether it was Amazon or Yahoo or Google or whatever. And so I was just kind of listening and they're asking my opinion. I don't say anything because I don't know anything about the tech world, but the principle of leadership applies to every organization. And so they just kind of made my point is like, wow, well, For this organization to succeed and go forward, it's got to have quality leadership. And that's true in the church. And so God knows that. He built the church. And that's what he wants. He wants healthy, growing, quality, biblical, stable, godly, local churches. And you have got to start with the leadership and put a godly structure of leadership intact and then actually fill the structure with qualified pastors, elders. And so that's what uh, God is asking uh ties to do here through the apostle paul i've mentioned this before just to accentuate how important it is when i go to a so i got i've been out of seminary like 20 years or so and through being a bible major in college and going to seminary uh just you know you get to know your friends your network of friends they aren't in the tech world they're in the ministry world and so and then every once in a while you get to see them at like a pastor's conference and so it, it never ceases to amaze me every time i go to like a pastor's conference or a counseling conference, whether it's once a year, every two years, I, inevitably, I will see somebody that I know and that I probably haven't seen in five to ten years. And we'll have the conversation. I'll talk to actually a lot of guys as we intermingle. One of the pastors conference has four thousand pastors. So you're talking to a lot of people. And every single time as I'm talking to the brothers, uh, you hear a very sad story that just kind of tears your heart out. Oh, how's it go? Where are you at now? Oh, well, I, I used to be at this church. Well, what do you mean you used to be? Oh, it blew up. Oh, yucky heard that before how to blow up and then inevitably it comes down to leadership oh the deacon board or the elder board and they couldn't get along and blah 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 and and you just hear that and it's like oh man again been hearing that for 20 plus years it is so common it is so sad uh, or they're at a church and they're having all kinds of problems and then uh, you know I start inquiring about well what's the you know what's the leadership doing about it or whatever and then sometimes there's a compromised leadership structure even that's not even biblical and as a result you've got problems so Paul knew, God knew, that you've got to start at the top with the proper structure, qualified leaders in that structure, and hopefully through that, you're going to have stability and some balance and health, and at least set yourself up for progress. And when conflict does come up, an opportunity and a venue to resolve conflict in a biblical manner. So that's why when you're talking about a church, godly church, healthy church, a church that pleases God, it's got to start with the foundation. And part of that foundation is your leadership, your leadership structure, and also what you believe about ministry and the Bible. So I uh, just can't overstate how important that is. Uh, another thought in light of that, it is important for people and Christians uh, to think about when they're trying to find a home church, well, what do you look for in a biblical church? And I think one of the first things you need to look for in a biblical church is its leadership. Uh, what's their structure? And that happens all the time because God moves us around the country. You move for your job. You move for school, that kind of thing. So it's always been good to add that to your list what, and actually probably start there. What is the leadership? Who are the men? Who are the pastors? Who are the deacons? Uh, another important question that people don't frequently ask is when they're looking at a church is, okay, they've got elders, but how did, how did these guys become elders? What was the process? They've got pastors. How did those pastors become pastors? How do they do that at that local church? I want to find out. That is so incredibly important, and that's a question I don't frequently hear asked, but it's clear in the New Testament, and Paul references it here in Titus 1.5. Look at that. For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, in order that you would set in order what remains by appointing elders. So that tells us there was a process by which you go through to appoint elders, pastors, leaders in a church. It's not just willy-nilly, on the fly, according to human tradition or somebody's opinion or preference. There's actually an appointment process that God has clearly established in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts and a couple other passages. Because today in America, you've got all kinds of different churches. And here are just common ways that leaders are appointed in churches. I've actually worked at churches like this. Very common. Um, Some churches, they will just vote for a guy. Oh, we vote for him. Uh, He's our pastor. And if you get a majority or, you know, they have sometimes a constitution uh, that determines that. So there's sometimes there's this very democratic process of voting who you want as your pastor or your elder. Uh, other denominations actually that are very highly structured and hierarchical. On, if you had a spectrum, the Roman Catholic Church would be the most hierarchical. And then on the least structured end might be like a Calvary Chapel. Those would be kind of two extremes. And every other church is somewhere on that spectrum. Uh, But the hierarchical churches actually, the local church doesn't get to appoint their church leadership or vote on their church leadership. It's just kind of dictated by the denomination or headquarters. Here, here's your pastor. Good luck. I hope it works out. That can be kind of scary. Um, And then there's a combination there. Or sometimes you got churches where the deacon board, you know, votes on and hires the next pastor or all the pastoral staff. Or if they have elders, they just it's only reserved to the elders and they hire the guy. Um, or sometimes churches entrust that to just the senior pastor, and that's kind of part of his job description. It's one guy, he calls all the shots, he's got all the power, he's called the senior pastor. By the way, I am not the senior pastor of this church, and we established that from day one when we planted the church because God's model for local churches there's always a plurality of elders who serve together in team ministry. And there is uh, the phrase senior pastor mentioned in the New Testament, and it's one time, and it's 1 Peter chapter 5, and it is reserved solely for Jesus. So it's not occupied. The position is not available. And I am so glad because Jesus is my senior pastor. Uh, so that's why I just refer to myself as one of the elders, and my, jo- my job, main job, is pastor, teacher. But there are many churches who have the senior pastor, and then actually part of his job description is to hire and fire everybody, whether it's uh, appointing elders, deacons uh, across the board. And then, um, strangely enough, and I've seen this uh, the last 20 years, and it's been true throughout history, some elders, pastors, and whatever, just appoint themselves to be a pastor or an elder. Very common, actually. And actually kind of scary. Or it could be a combination of all of those. And I would just say that, well, there actually is a biblical guideline, and so uh, we're going to look at the biblical guideline. And then we'll go into our outline there, looking at a couple of the qualifications. So what is the biblical guideline that God has set down, clearly in the New Testament, by which we are to select, choose, ordain, and appoint elders, pastors, deacons, I mean, yeah, even including deacons in the church. Uh, I would start with that verse that we looked at last week. If you want to turn there, you can Otherwise, I'll just read it. And that was in Acts 28. So who appoints, chooses pastors to be pastors, elders to be elders in a local church? And I would say it's not just one answer and it's not just one person. It is a corporate effort. In Acts chapter 28, verse 28, we read this last week. Paul is talking to the elders at Ephesus. He's probably never going to see them again. He reminds these elders, these pastors, be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock, your local churches. Get this among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. The Holy Spirit has made you a pastor in the church in which you serve. The Holy Spirit of God has made you an overseer, a bishop, episcopas, presbyter, whatever you want to call yourself. So, according to God, God's plan is, how does a guy become an elder in a church? Is Well, the Spirit of God, hopefully, is the one who ultimately appointed him in that leadership position. It's got to start there. How does God do that? How does the Holy Spirit do it? How do we know if that it, it's the Holy Spirit working on somebody or not? That's kind of hard to discern because number, the Holy Spirit's invisible. and why? And He doesn't talk to me very often. So how do we determine if it is the Spirit of God working on someone? And that's where the next three points are so important. Because the Bible says if you're a Christian, the moment you believed and became a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Isn't that amazing? The same Spirit of God who created the world out of nothing, the same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in every single Christian. So if it is the Holy Spirit is the one who sets men apart to be pastors in churches, the Holy Spirit is also living in every single Christian in that local congregation. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is going to speak up through those people. That's how He operates. And the Holy Spirit always reveals His will, I believe, with unity. It's unity in the truth. So that's how God works. He does it. He initiates it. He's overseeing it. He is sovereign. And He actually works through people in very real and practical ways. Which takes me to my next three points. So it is the Holy Spirit of God who ordains elders in the church, and He does it through people. Well, who did He do it through? Well, according to Acts 14.23, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, who were pastors, elders, Paul and Apostle, went and planted a bunch of churches, raised up the saints, trained them, and then it says that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders. And they did it in every church. And Peter did the same thing as an elder. He appointed elders. First Timothy 5 alludes to the fact that elders in the local church also appoint other elders. So how does God's Spirit set apart men to be elders in a church? He does it through human beings, and he starts with the current godly leadership there to ordain and recognize people that God is raising up through His Spirit. So... The Holy Spirit appoints elders and biblical elders also appoint elders. And they do it jointly together through biblical principles. But that's not all. It's not just the elders. It's not just this self-perpetuating board, which is actually kind of dangerous. That's not enough accountability. That's not enough input. And that's why in Acts chapter 6, I want you to actually look at that because the terminology is very specific. Acts chapter 6, you had elders in the local church of Jerusalem, who were being overwhelmed with people joining their church in the early church. You had 12 apostles who were the quasi-elders of that church. And the apostles, as elders, had specific responsibilities of shepherding, preaching, teaching, and praying. And they could not serve the needs of the 5,000 other people in the church in many practical ways. So God put it on the heart of the leadership, the elders, the apostles, to raise up deacons very interesting what uh, the apostles say here. Um, Peter's talking. He's the spokesperson. Therefore, uh, well, it doesn't say Peter. Therefore, verse 3, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men. So they need to, oh, verse 2. So the twelve, the apostles, some in the congregation. That's the saints in the local church. Those were the members of the local church. The apostles, who were overwhelmed, some of the congregation, so they had a congregational meeting for the members of the disciples and they said, it is not desirable for us as the apostles, elders, to neglect the word of God teaching it in order to serve tables. These practical things that need to be done around the church. Verse 3, therefore, brethren, fellow believers, select from among you seven men. See, there it is. Saints in the local church is, are used by God's Spirit to identify leadership in the church alongside the elders of the church. So it's a joint effort. They are to complement one another. Therefore, brethren, you believers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. There's the qualifications. Verse four. After we get our deacons in place, then we the apostles would devote ourselves to prayer, the ministry of the word. Verse five, get this. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, all the members, hey yeah, this is great. We'll be led by prayer, spirit, we'll talk, look through the qualifications, and see who God's raising up in our local congregation. So it found favor with the whole congregation, so they chose those men. Then verse 6 says, and they brought these men before the apostles, who were the quasi-elders of that first church, and after praying, get this, the apostles laid their hands on them. So uh, the apostles took leadership in this process of ordination and recognizing leadership in the church, but they allowed the believing saints to be a part of it in a legitimate way, with guidelines, with qualifications, and it was a complementary ministry of identifying leaders in the church. That's the way it needs to be done. It's not a self perpetuating elders only, deacons only kind of thing. Very, very important. So who appoints elders and pastors in the church? Well, the Spirit of God, qualified elders, uh, the members in any local given congregation following biblical guidelines. And then finally, there's one more person that contributes to ordaining or appointing a pastor or elder in the church, and that's the guy himself or the pastor or the overseer who's being considered. You can't coerce a man to be an elder in your church if he doesn't want to or if he doesn't feel like this is not God's will. It's been done. People have done that. I've seen it firsthand. People putting pressure on certain men for wrong reasons. I mean, looking at a godly man and then, wow, he's really successful in his business. Man, we need a good businessman on our board. Or, uh, yeah, and he makes a lot of money. He's a charismatic person. He's very organized. He's very influential. He has a great speaking voice. Whatever it is. And they're approaching these men and sometimes coercing them against maybe their conscience or against God's will. So, very important. So take us back to 1 Timothy 3. Look at the first verse in 1 Timothy 3 again. So who participates in appointing elders, pastors, overseers in the church? Well, we can't forget this entity, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires, has the desire to the office of overseer. If a man has a desire to be an elder in the church. That, that's not self-seeking. That is not arrogant, that desire. It says that is a fine work he desires to do. That is a good desire. If a man desires to be an elder in the local church. At face value, it is a good desire. Then it just has to be vetted and checked and prayed through. Uh, through the qualifications and the proper procedure. But the point is, the man himself who is being considered as elder overseer, it has to start with him. Does he even have a desire? And so uh, I think the leadership needs to talk to a man like that, who they think is a prospective elder, and ask him, "Do you? here's what the Bible says an elder is. Here are the qualifications. Here's what they do. Do you have any inkling or desire for that kind of a role? And if you're not sure, that's fine, but you need to pray about it, search the scriptures and we'll help you pray about it so you can understand what you might be getting into, because you have got to it's gotta start right there. It's gotta be his desire that God has laid on his heart and then confirmed by Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, by God's people, by the current leadership in place. And that's those are just kind of rough parameters, but they're clear parameters from Scripture. And I believe that's how God works in local churches to indeed appoint elders in a local church. So with that, uh, I didn't get to talk enough about Titus chapter 1, verse 5 and that phrase there where Paul tells Titus, you need to appoint elders. He's not just saying Titus all by himself. Oh, I like you, and I like you, and you gave me extra dessert at the fellowship meal, so I like you. You can be an elder of the dessert table. No, it wasn't Titus uh, working unilaterally. I think he was using Paul's, Paul's biblical principles that have been clearly established. The precedent was there, and they went from there. Uh, So let's go ahead and look at now the qualifications, the specific qualifications of a man to be considered an elder. And we'll start in verse 6. And we're just going to hit a few today, and we'll get the rest, I think, hopefully next week. So let's go ahead and look at it. Um, First, that introductory statement, an elder has control of his family. That's kind of the point of emphasis there that knits all those qualifications together in verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. They're all related. If you're looking for an elder, then... You've got to decide, okay, is this guy, as far as we know, is he in control of his family? In the words of Timothy, chapter 3, does he manage his household well? Notice Paul did not say, and God did not say, he manages his his household perfectly. Because then, oops, nobody would be qualified and we would have no elders. So God knows. He's gracious. We all walk with feet of clay. He manages his household well. He's not the perfect dad, perfect husband, whatever, but... There's some order there. There's some spiritual maturity there that can be clearly identified. Um, so that's what I mean by that umbrella statement there that an elder has control of his family. And specifically, let's look at what those home life qualifications are as Titus articulates those, looking at Titus chapter 1, verse 6. Well, namely, if any man is above reproach, notice again at the beginning of verse 7 For the overseer must be above reproach. That same phrase, above reproach, above reproach. And and sandwiched in between above reproach and above reproach are these family qualifications. What kind of a dad is he? What kind of a husband is he? Also notice in verse 7, it says the overseer. But in verse 5, he called them elders. An elder is an overseer. Same person, office. So that first term there, above reproach. um, Some English translations might might say blameless. Which could be a little misleading if you don't know what the word, the Greek word means. Blameless is almost like you don't sin. That is not what it means. Noah was blameless, but he was he struggled with sin. Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad was blameless, but he he struggled with sin. So it doesn't mean sinless. It's actually a legal term, and it was in Paul's day, used in the courtroom or with the authorities and the police. And someone who was not above reproach was somebody who deserve to be indicted and also deserve to be arrested and also deserve to be interrogated and also deserve to be thrown in the slammer. If you were not above reproach. That's what it means. So some English translations, uh, above reproach, blameless. Uh, another good translation in the English is without accusation. In other words, an accusation won't stick. They're going to get accusation. Every pastor, every elder in time, they are going to be accused. They are going to be accused. And they are not guilty just because they've been accused. You're going to be accused if you're in ministry at that level. Actually, every every leader in every organization is going to be maligned, accused, whatever else. And many times it's falsely without warrant. So the man of God who is above reproach, he will be accused, but he's like the Teflon leader. In other words, no accusations stick because they're fallacious. They are false. They're not legit they are bogus. They are motivated by wrong motives and not out of a heart of love or biblical truth. So the biblical qualified elder is going to be blameless without accusation. In other words, accusations that could disqualify him, they aren't going to stick because they aren't true in his life. And again, this is not perfection. Again, it's the direction of your life. So this term, a legal term, he must be above reproach. Also, it should be pointed out The same truth is also highlighted in 1 Timothy 3. It's used two times here, above reproach, above reproach. There are many times where the phrase above reproach is used as an umbrella term, a more broad term than the following qualifications we're about to see. So some Bible interpreters legitimately say, well, that first qualification is an umbrella term uh, that the elder or pastor is uh, above reproach in his family life. And then the specific qualifications follow fall under that umbrella, that he's above reproach in his family life, specifically with his wife, with his kids, how he runs the home. So it is a more generic, general umbrella term, not as specific sometimes. That's true, and it's good to keep that in mind. That's why he keeps repeating that phrase. So uh, so first of all, is an elder has control of his family, and he is above reproach, generically speaking, and that's how, and it's talking about the pattern of his life and how he maintains his life. He is, at least visibly and publicly, an example. And then there are specific qualifications that talk about, well, what is he in his private life as well. So an elder must be above reproach. Cannot legitimately be called into question and be disqualified on some specific issue or pattern of life. Let's go to number two on how the elder has control over his family. So generally, in other words, because he's above reproach, he's just a good family man. You know enough to know this guy's a good family man. Would I buy a parenting book from this guy or not? I'm teaching this parenting seminar with my wife on Thursday nights, and it's been—we're uh, having a great turnout, and I got a bunch of resources for it. And that's actually how I'm choosing my books, because it seems like a lot of people have written books on parenting, and I am actually only uh, confining it to people I know their reputation, and not only do they know their reputation, that they actually raised kids, and actually, their kids are actually godly. So that's kind of how I've been. So for me, it's this generic, yeah, Adrian Rogers, he's in heaven now, but I think he was a, an exemplary, above reproach, pastor, man of God who raised godly kids. And then he wrote a book at the end of his life on parenting. It's very good. And it's in keeping with biblical principles. And so uh, that's kind of the point there on number one, above reproach. And then now the specifics that we're supposed to be looking at in his family life, and those are uh, two, three, and four. So number two is an elder is committed to his wife. You could say it a couple of different ways. The elder is committed to his wife. The elder is committed to his marriage. And the specific terminology, look at verse 6. Namely, if any man is above reproach in his family life, for example, the husband of one wife. And then it talks about the children, and that, by God's design, is in the proper order there. that The spouse comes first, then the children in terms of God's Pattern, man and wife together is one flesh. In the eyes of God, Genesis chapter 2. Then children come later. They are the blessed addition. No, they are the blessed temporary addition. Then they grow up, maybe. Hopefully they move out someday. Start their own family. And you've still got mom and dad, husband and wife intact. One flesh. So that's why I think it is the priority here. If you're going to look at a man's you know, family life, then you gotta first look at his marriage and what is his attitude towards his wife. And so in verse uh, 6, husband of one wife. This is very difficult to translate from the Greek language because Paul, I think Paul made this phrase up. He took some Greek words that were very common that he knew and he threw them together to make up a new adjective. A, an inspired one. And so Greek scholars are, whoa, what did Paul mean and how should it be translated? And it's, I think it's kind of a no-brainer. He's talking about husbands and their wife. And then he throws in the word one. Uh, So there's actually some good English translations of this. Uh, One of the best ones, I think, is a one-woman man. An elder who is married should be a one-woman man. That's probably one of the most popular translations of what that means. So if a pastor is married, he should be a one-woman man, and he's characterized by that. He is wholly, totally devoted to his wife and his wife alone is what that means. Now, there have been occasions throughout church history where every once in a while... Uh, somebody suggested a meaning that I don't think is the primary meaning meaning for this qualification, a one-woman man, because there are churches who have, and there are churches today who still say, well, what this is emphasizing, the word one, it's that a man, if he's married, he's only had one wife in his lifetime. So if a man has ever been divorced and remarried, he's totally disqualified forever, can never be an elder or pastor in the church. And I just say, well, that's not true because there are other passages that clearly allow for a biblical divorce and a man to be remarried again in a biblical way and grow in godliness with a godly couple who later on becomes qualified as an elder in the church. So Scripture addresses that elsewhere. Um, I also don't think that this means that an elder has to be married. We know that from Paul's life. The Apostle Paul, who was an apostle, he was a pastor, he was a teacher, he was an elder, just like Peter. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul said of himself that he was single and he didn't have a wife, 1 Corinthians 9. He was single, and, and as far as we know, he didn't have any kids either. So if we were going to say that, well, this verse says that an elder or pastor has to be married, then Paul the Apostle would have been disqualified. But we know that's not true. Uh, you can be a man of God and single. You, maybe you're gifted with the gift of singleness or you've never been married or whatever. Or maybe your wife died and went to heaven. Um, that you're not being disqualified because you don't have a wife. But most people, especially in Paul's day, didn't have the gift of singleness, so they got married. Many times they got married young and had children. That was just the common status of the day. Um, and that's just normal for human society. Uh, so a one-woman man, faithful to his wife, marital fidelity. This also has overtones of moral purity and sexual purity. But he's maintaining that with his wife in all possible ways. And his wife is helping him to maintain that and holding him accountable. And she's the first line of defense in helping him maintain that and also fulfilling him. That's Proverbs five, very clear. First Corinthians seven. Talks about that as well. So when you're looking at an elder, you're looking, is this man above reproach in his family life? And then you look at his marriage and say, how long have they been married? Do they love each other? What's his wife like? Is she a believer? Do they get along? Are they one flesh in all ways? Uh, and, you know, probably even have to talk to the husband and wife as well. How's it going? How do you see God working in your marriage? But it's very important to consider that uh, in the man of God who's going to be a part of leading God's church. A one Woman, man. He is married to one woman if he's married and he's totally devoted to her and her alone. That is the point of emphasis on that qualification. Does he have a quality marriage? Not a perfect marriage, but one that's growing and going in the right direction. Very important. Because just because you've been married 25, 30 years doesn't mean you have a good or healthy marriage. I know people, I have friends. Married 25, 30 years, and then got divorced. And then when you find out behind the scenes, it wasn't getting better and better. And then all of a sudden it tanked. Actually, what was happening? It was getting getting worse every step and year of the way. It's like, wow, why'd you get married after 40 plus years? I mean, why'd you get divorced after 40 some odd years? Oh, we were just waiting for the children to graduate and be out of the house. We didn't want to disrupt their lives. I mean, that's honest uh, stories that have been told. So you have to look below the surface at the quality of the marriage and how committed they are and that husband is and that elder to his wife and that truth of being one with his spouse, one flesh. Very important. So is the man of God candidate above reproach with respect to his family? If he's married, uh, is he committed to his wife and his wife alone and they have a good and growing marriage? And then now you inquire if they have children, you've got to look at their children. Uh, That would be the next one, point number three. Or No, number four. We'll go down to that in a second. So this is kind of a footnote, number three, uh, before moving on to his children. An elder is a male, M-A-L-E. So a man as opposed to a woman. Uh, this is very important and have to address this. And I get that from the text. The fact uh, the qualification of an elder is he's a husband of one wife. He's a man of one wife. That word for husband or man is reserved in the New Testament for males and males alone. All the pronouns being used here are masculine, singular. Uh, so it is, is clear from this passage that when you're considering elders, they need to be males, not females. And then the natural question from that is, well, how come women are not being considered? Or, or can a woman be a pastor? Can a female be an elder? And I think scripture addresses this very clearly. Just so you know, a little history lesson, prior to the 1960s here in America, when there was the the marijuana and all that other stuff revolution, prior to the 1960s, for 1950 years, it was pretty much understood, no-brainer, and nobody had any qualms with the idea that elders and pastors in a church were men and only men. Nobody really resisted that. It was just understood. Why was it understood? Because that's what the Bible clearly taught. That's what the church said. Then part of that revolution that happened in the 60s was the liberal, humanistic, feminist, liberate-yourself women's feminist movement that has grown more and more in total opposition to biblical truth and biblical foundations. So on point number three, an elder needs to be a male who is qualified. This is not because God likes men more than he likes women. See, and that's, that's where you've got to start. This has absolutely nothing to do with the value, the worth, or the dignity of a man over a woman. It is 100% strictly over function and roles. That's all, all there is to it. We know that from Scripture from the very beginning. This is clear in Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It has to do with how God created us and what God's designated functions and roles are for us. That's it. Because God knows. He created us. He knows us best. He knows what works best. He knows that a church with qualified men who are elders works best. And that's the way it needs to be done because God does know best. That doesn't mean that women are not important in the local church. If you were to ask me as a pastor who started a church plant six years ago with a group of people, so who have been most vital and contributed more to the significance of your ministry since you started six years ago? The men or the women of your church? And before I'd answer, I would run. And then they'd catch me and I'd say, actually, it was the men and the women of this church. Maleness or femaleness had nothing to do with it. My my wife was just as important as I was into it because we are a team, we are one flesh. I have my role, she has her role. By the way, secret she doesn't want my role. I know a lot of godly, mature Christian women. Many have written books on this very topic. Some of the strongest Christian voices who come come out and call uh, Christians to repentance in this area of allowing women to become pastors are females godly women because it just violates their conscience and they know that it's clear in scripture as a matter of fact uh in six years of interviewing people for the membership process here at gbf many people what, you know i say well why do you, why have you landed on gbf well for one thing this is one of the few churches in the bay area that doesn't allow uh female pastors and i know that is just unbiblical to have women as pastors it's like wow and Most of the people that say that during the membership process who do say it are females, which is just kind of interesting. So this has nothing to do with a man looking down his nose at females as inferior. This is strictly having to do with God's roles. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 2. God created the man first, not because he was more important, but that was establishing the order that God would use for the rest of human history. The man was created first to be the head of the home, the provider of the home, the protector of his wife. Then He created the female to complement her perfectly in every way. So that the two of them are a perfect complement. So again, it has to do with roles, not with what or who God likes better. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And then on day 6, God said thus to Himself, the Trinity, Let us make man in our image. Not That's not just males. Let us make man in our image. And in the image of God, He created them. Get this, male and female. There it is. Together, So it's man and woman together fully reflect the image of God by God's design. And all throughout history from Genesis 2 all the way to the New Testament, God's order and by way of function in this world is the man is the leader in the home and in the church and the wife is the complement and the perfect support by God's design. And she is just as needed and effective in the home life and in ministry. Um, So at our house, I am the head of the home by God's delegated authority. And my wife and I, we know what that means because Scripture lays it out. That doesn't mean God likes me more, but I'm the head of the home. That's what God has ordained. She is the perfect complement or supplement so that we can have an orderly home. That doesn't mean that my children like me more. Far from it. When they get a boo-boo, they run in, and they don't run to Daddy. They run to Mommy, who can nurture and kiss and make feel better. And Dad says, suck it up, and that doesn't work. Um <laughs> So this just comes, it's just roles. I do want to read two passages there that, that make this clearer. I didn't make this up. By the way, the only reason I believe that women can't be pastors is because it's in the Bible. If God wrote, well, women can be pastors too, then I would believe in female pastors. It just comes down to God. He is the Creator. He designed it. He knows us best. Uh, men are daddies. Women have babies. Inviolable roles. Uh, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul, through the Holy Spirit of God, is talking about order in the church, functional order, starting at verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 2, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves. So he's talking about men and women, how they should behave with proper propriety in the church and even their roles in terms of leadership. First um, Timothy 2, starting at verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, Uh, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And he's talking about in the church of Ephesus. In the local church. Some people try to take it out of context and they apply that in the home and the kitchen, that the wife can never say anything to the husband about anything. That is not... What he's talking about. It's limited in terms of its jurisdiction. A woman must quietly receive instruction with, and so she can be a learner. She can be a woman of the Word. She can be a Berean. There's great liberty and freedom here that actually Paul is giving that Roman women and Gentile women didn't have in their day. They're being liberated and set free with this great biblical truth right here to grow as Christians. Verse 12, but I do not allow a woman. I, the Apostle Paul, as a spokesman for God Himself and the Lord Jesus Christ, I do not. this is not because Paul didn't like women. I, as an apostle, do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. In the Greek text, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to have a position of teaching authority in the church. That's what it means. In other words, the preaching position, the leadership position. That's exactly what he's talking about. But to remain quiet. In other words, she's not to be called as an elder and a preacher in the church. Here are the reasons. Well, that was just a cultural thing because Paul didn't like women or in those days women were inferior. No, it is not just a cultural thing. It is a mandate from God that transcends transcends all time throughout history because the reason for it, the foundation for it, the biblical principles in the next verse in verse 13. Look at it. Why is Paul saying that women shouldn't be teaching pastors in the church? Well, verse 13, for or because or this is the reason why. That's what that means for. Because it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. That was the order that God established. Who goes first? Headship. Verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into temptation. And then he goes on to say, but at the same time, there's a blessing that's reserved strictly for women too. And that that God has given them the amazing ability to give life to another eternal soul in a way that man never could. And so that's just as valuable as a, a man's role teaching in the church. So... Uh, one more verse, uh, and that's 1 Corinthians 14 at the very end of that chapter. And again, this is talking about roles just in the church in terms of leadership, the preaching and teaching ministry reserved for the pastors and elders. And by the way, you know, this isn't just disqualifying women. This is also disqualifying a lot of men, too, in terms of the qualifications and what the role is. Uh, Paul concludes uh, something he's been talking about for several chapters. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 now, if you are a Christian and you have never seen this Bible verse, you might have a coronary. I don't know. It's possible. Because I know when I became a Christian and I read this, I came out of a totally unbiblical background and upbringing. And I remember, I remember the day that another Christian shared this with me when I was in college. I could not believe it was in the Bible. This is unbelievable. This man, you could really get in trouble for reading this verse out loud in public. Yeah, you could. That's what I was thinking. So if you have the same reaction, I understand that. Uh, verse 34, the, the women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, see, it's a pattern God had already laid down. Verse 35, if they desire to, well, where in the law? Well, for example, priests, high priests, whatever else, couldn't be women, only qualified men. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. That they heard, you know, at church or in the sermon, or they want to know some theology that came up from the pulpit or whatever. It is, imp- and here's his reason: for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. That, it's not talking about having donuts out there by the coffee that women can't talk. That is not what he's talking about. He is talking about the prophetic and preaching ministry because that's what the last three chapters of Corinthians were talking about. Okay, so let's go back uh, to Titus chapter one. So. An elder is to be above reproach with respect to his family. His family uh, needs to be above reproach. He needs to be above reproach as a family man and leader. His marriage needs to be intact and growing and going in the right direction. One with his spouse and committed only and totally to her. And he needs to be a man. By the way, maybe for particularly some of you women who are still unsettled at these verses that I read today, that's okay. Think about it. Pray about it. Remind yourself, God, this is God's Word. He is the authority. He knows best. If you're struggling, then you've got a wrestling match ahead of you. And you've got to work it out. And ultimately, you're going to have to submit to the truth of Scripture. But if you're looking for some hope, uh, the good news is this hierarchy apparently is only reserved for this life in this fallen world. Because you go to the book of Revelation... And it says that anybody who's an overcomer, anybody that's a Christian, anybody that's a believer, has all these rights and privileges, and it doesn't matter if you're a male, a female, a boy, or a girl. Like, one of them. That's really cool. If you're an overcomer and you're a believer, someday you will be given the, the right to reign with Jesus. He's going to give you His scepter. He's going to put His crown on your head. And you actually get to sit on His throne. And can you imagine? That includes women who are believers. Princess or queen or whatever you want to call yourself. You're going to have authority and right to rule on behalf of Jesus in the future. And no longer, especially if you're married in this life as a woman, you won't have your imperfect husband. Jesus will be your husband. The perfect husband. Oh, what a day! I should write a song. Okay, let's go on to the last one. Well, what about His children? Well, does this mean... In verse 6, if the, the man is above reproach, he's the husband of one wife, having children. Does this mean he has to have children to be an elder? And I would say no. But they did get married earlier back yonder in Paul's day. And they had more kids on the average than we did. So if you had an older man, then he probably had a snoot full of kids. That was not uncommon. And you were to... Watch his life. What kind of dad does he, can, he can, keep, can he keep his house in order? Can he raise his kids? Okay, because if he can't even do that, the small microcosm at home, how in the world is he supposed to be entrusted with a church of 50 or 150 or 5,000 people he has to manage? We're supposed to be his sheep. Can't do it. So the training ground is the home. So look at his children. Look at his family life. And what about his children? Verse 6, the man wants to be an elder. Having children who believe. Maybe somebody has another English translation that says having children who are faithful. By the way, it's the exact same word can be translated either way. It's either believing or faithful. Each one is legitimate. There was a huge debate at my seminary when I was there about, well, which one is it? Among the seminary professors. They didn't agree. Some some of the professors there didn't agree with John MacArthur and he was the president of the seminary. He could have fired them, but he didn't because he knew this term could be translated either as faithful or believing. By the way, I think for, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 6 is emphasizing older children because of the two adjectives that follow. Look at having children who believe, having children who are faithful. That's where I'm going to land right now. Having faithful children because do you know that the fact of the matter is I as a human being who am finite, I don't know if anybody in here is truly genuinely born again in the ultimate sense of the word. I don't know that. Only God does. And you don't know if I am ultimately truly in the ultimate sense born again. Only God can read the hearts. The same is also true of all of my children. I can see the direction of their life, how they talk, how they conduct themselves, looking for fruit to hang on and examine in light of Scripture. But ultimately, I don't know. That's why I land with the word faithful. At least there are things they can do outwardly to be faithful and honor the home that are clear and unquestionable. But I think these are older children in the home because of the following two adjectives. Having children who are faithful, here it is, not accused of dissipation, not accused of drunken, riotous living. And three-year-olds typically don't go to parties. <laughs> but that word is reserved for... It's the same word in Ephesians 5.18 of a drunkard and going out and party and the keg and all that stuff. These are older children, but they still live in the home and are under the authority of their parents. And the same thing with rebellion. This is a, an older, rebellious, uh, unruly teenager, if you will. This is not referring to a two-year-old. You know, it's interesting. Go to Timothy real quick and because this is the last one we'll close with. Timothy emphasizes the younger children. It's a beautiful compliment. Titus emphasizes your teenager. And then uh, Timothy is emphasizing your younger elementary preschool children. I believe. So, 1 Timothy 3, trustworthy statement. Verse 2, overseer must be above reproach. Uh, verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well. See, notice, he's not a perfect dad. His kids aren't perfect. He just manages the house well, not perfectly. But there is order. He is in charge. He's clearly the head. He's trying his best. He is a godly man. Him and his wife are one. What are they doing? They are keeping. He's keeping his children under control. You know, that's all you can do with a two-year-old, right? Try to keep them under control. Try to keep them obedient. Chase them down. And that's the emphasis here. Keeping their children under control. And here's the kicker. With all dignity. Without getting embarrassed too much. Keeping those younger children under control. Beautiful compliment to Titus, where it's talking about the older kids. And then next week, we, oh, and then he concludes with that, uh, bookend statement in verse 7 For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward in the church. With that, we'll go ahead and close. But I would challenge you to, well, what do I do with this? This is talking about qualifications of an elder. I'm a female. I don't want to be an elder or whatever. This doesn't apply to me. Yeah, it does. If you're a Christian and you go to a church, this applies to you. What kind of church are you going to? What is the leadership of the church that you go to? Some of you are actually looking for churches. You need to take this into consideration. Is it a biblical model? Also, those of you who are members here and stay here regularly and you call this your church home, you need to be praying for your elders here because they walk with feet of clay. We are imperfect. We are... Uh, Dependent upon God, His grace, and His mercy every single day that we can do the job that pleases Him, and yet we know we can be disqualified any given moment because we are susceptible to any conceivable sin out there, just like any other Christian. You need to pray for the ongoing protection of your elders. Also, uh, you need to pray that God would raise up more elders here at your local church at GBF. Because you have 170, 180, 200 people, currently four elders, we, we need more elders to shoulder the ministry. We need more deacons. We need more leaders in classes and ministries. God needs to grow us, develop us, and mature us just like those younger, immature, unstable churches in Titus. And with that, let's go to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus, and thank Him for our time together as we pray. Father, we do thank You for time in the Word. We thank You for how practical it is written 2,000 years ago, and yet You knew best about how to deal with leadership in the local church. Uh, At the same time, God, you are so gracious and merciful, allowing sinful fallen people to still serve on your behalf and provide some leadership. God, I pray for our church, uh, Grace Bible Fellowship. You continue to help us, sustain us, be gracious to us. Thank you so much for your mercy so far. Help us to never forget that we follow the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus himself, the all-sufficient one. And we are simply to do his bidding as he asks us to do. Help us to be faithful in that charge as we commit our time to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit GBFSV.org or call us at six five zero six three zero. Zero 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 nine.